This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor of Education Next. The just-released Education Next poll shows that opposition to school vouchers is falling. But some of the results from voucher programs around the country in terms of student achievement are showing less than sterling results. And some people are suggesting that vouchers are doing less well than they could because some of the best private schools are finding the regulations that states add to the voucher programs they enact are just too burdensome. Well, Anna Egalate decided to actually look at this question. She's a professor at North Carolina State University's College of Education, and uh, she, North Carolina, has implemented a voucher program known as the Opportunity Scholarship Program, and they did so in 2014-15. So Anna decided to contact private schools throughout the state of North Carolina to find out why some participated in the program and others did not. Anna, it is great having you on the Education Exchange today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for the invitation to be on the show, Paul. It's great to be here. Well, can you describe some of the key features of the North Carolina Opportunity Scholarship Program? What did the legislature actually enact? Sure thing. So this is a targeted voucher program, uh, meaning it's not universal eligibility. It's targeted for lower-income families across the state. And the vouchers are worth $4,200 per student per year. They get that in two installments, so they can attend for a semester at a time, and it's paid out on a semester basis. Um, the students that um, can qualify for a voucher are in kindergarten through 12th grade, although if you're entering kindergarten or first grade, they actually do cap the number of those vouchers that they give out, so that, that cannot exceed 40%. And part of the reason for that is that all of the other grades, students have to be coming from public school. But that's not the case if you're at the lower end of the entry, at the entry point. And there was funding for, to, for about 6,000 students in 2015-16, and actually only about 3,600 ended up using a voucher. So that was part of our research was asking those parents about why they did or didn't accept the voucher. And then similarly, um, to participate on the school side, the schools, there, there isn't a lot in terms of the regulations compared to other states. The schools can give any nationally normed standardized test of their choosing. They don't, they're not required to give a particular standardized test or the state test, as is the case in Louisiana, for example. And the schools must be registered as a private school with the Division of Non-Public Education, which is the state agency that oversees all the private schools. And then they register with the agency that oversees the voucher program in particular to say, yes, we would like to accept voucher students. So um, of all the private schools in the state, about 58% of them registered with the state to say they'd like to participate. And then, you know, there was drop-off in terms of they didn't get enough applicants or they changed their minds. So about 44% actually ended up enrolling voucher recipients in 2015-16. Well, we do, were they, do they have to take every student that applies to their school? No, that's not true at all. So that is the case in other states. But here, they, the students actually apply twice. They apply for a voucher, and that's the funding part sorted. But then they have to apply for admission to the private school. And the private schools all have their own criteria that they're allowed to employ. 
And we did ask them about those criteria. It seems the most common thing that they do is to have an interview with the family to determine if it's going to be a good fit. But they can look at test scores. They can look at whatever criteria they outline for themselves. So the kids have to be accepted twice. They have to be accepted for a voucher, and then they actually have to be accepted for admission at a private school. Well, so it's $4,400 scholarship. Uh, if the tuition is higher than that, uh, can the family uh, pay the difference? Yeah, so th- the schools are not required to accept that 4200 as total payment. So if their tuition is higher, then families have to make up the difference, or the schools themselves are putting together financial aid packets to match the Opportunity Scholarship or to make up the difference in some way. Actually, a lot of the private school leaders we talked with, and we did focus groups and interviews with 49 school leaders, they did a, a kind of a theme that came up over and over was that they said that they like it when the families have to pay something, that they have some skin in the game. And so they will design very often their financial aid package so that there's still something left over that the families are responsible for paying. Well, that's something I've always favored, that the, the uh, scholarship program should allow families to uh, pay some contribution to the school because I think if if you really are committed uh, to your child's education, then you should be able to come up with some resources, even if you are of, uh, of low income. Of course, it's easy to say when you're not of low income, but um, it's, it's, I guess, a feeling that some of these schools have as well. That is definitely the case. It's hard to know whether that's a a positive or a negative feature, though, because a lot of the families did talk about unanticipated costs. So maybe they were aware that they'd have to make up some of the difference for the tuition or fees, and they might have written their budget, their household budget, and figured out, out a way to make that happen. But then unanticipated costs were things like transportation um, and also school meals. So those who they were uh, coming from public school, and they would have qualified for the free and reduced lunch program. And so for most of them, they said, well, we didn't expect that we'd have to start paying for breakfast and lunch. And these were new charges and things like school uniforms um, and sports fees, um, new charges that they hadn't anticipated. I see. So it isn't just tuition that they may have to uh, make exactly. uh, contract. There's some fees that uh, a lot of private schools always impose but can come to uh, as a surprise to parents of uh, children who've been in public school previously. That's right, and even that's even before they're admitted. So the school might have an admissions fee, like an application fee, and then when they do get accepted, a registration fee, and those could be $1,000 depending on the school. I mean, there's huge variation. So you, you uh, say that 6,000 were uh, was the most that could apply, but only 3,600 are actually enrolled. Did many more apply? apply and but didn't find a a school that suited them or the or the school was not uh willing to take them right so that's that's a good question and that's that number of students who like that six thousand number is a moving target because every year the program is slated to grow so the legislature has written into their budget for the next couple of years that the program should expand by 10 million dollars a year and so that means more spots will open up um, but just looking at the students who didn't end up using the vouchers, um, a chunk of them were ineligible. So about a quarter of them applied and either realized that their household income was too high, so it was above the cap, or that they had to be coming from public school and they didn't know that. So they were already enrolled in a private school or maybe they were being homeschooled. I see. So if you're now in the future, though, you could get more applicants coming from K into the K-1 grades, though you say there's a limit on that. Yeah, 40 percent of all the vouchers. Are they, is, are they is that 
up to the limit right now? Yes. They, so the year, the data that we looked at, the, which was last year, is they they did hit that forty percent cap, and then they had to start turning people down or putting them on the waiting list. So these, uh, uh, it seems like the voucher program is most attractive both to schools and to families if you can start in the private school right from the beginning, in kindergarten right. or first grade. And once you get a voucher, you're not guaranteed it forevermore. You have to apply to renew it every year. And we looked at that population, and there was a number of them that actually became ineligible from the first year they applied and were accepted to the next year when they tried to renew it. And that's something that families have to consider. It came up in our focus groups where parents talked about carefully considering whether or not to take on a new job opportunity or overtime opportunities because it might kick them out of the income-eligible bracket. Well, you know, they call this the poverty trap. You know, we, right. ha- we set up government programs that tell people, well, we'll do this for you if you'll just stay poor. And right. then you, you then you give people incentives to stay poor. And I guess, you know, uh, people who talk about we need to have more voucher programs uh, sometimes overlook that they may be another one of those programs that are trapping people in poverty. Right, and there's, there's ways around this. The programs can be designed to have a flexible income cap. Once you're in, it can be allowed to grow. Like I think the Milwaukee program has that sort of provision where your income can grow by X percent from year to year once you're in the program. Yeah, well, what percentage of private schools actually took advantage of the program? So in the year that we looked at, it was 44%, so a little less than half. Um, Some of the schools were just not aware of the program. That's why we wanted to do the survey. So we started with um, this listening tour is what we called it. We went to five representative locations across the state, and we visited in person and met with people for focus groups and interviews. But, you know, you can only reach so many people that way. We reached 49 school leaders and 13 parents, but we followed up with a survey. So we sent the survey to every private school in the state and asked them, you know, do you participate? And, and if you don't, um, how come? And, and if you do, what are your motivations for, for participation? So how many schools responded to your survey? So, you know, this is an online survey. This was sent out by email with the help of the Division of Non-Public Education. So that's, um, you know, we expect a low response rate for those types of surveys. Let me get you the exact response rate. Uh, 40% response rate on the private school. Yeah, well, that's not too bad. I've, I've heard the numbers often come out in the 30s. So if yeah. you actually hit the 40 level, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, you know, not great, but it's not so it's really yeah. about what you have to expect with this kind of a survey where they don't are not compelled to reply. Yeah. So let us assume that you've got a, a fairly uh, reasonable response. Did you check, do any checks to see if this is a representative sample? Do they have the same, you know, some characteristics that are similar to the population as a whole? We were torn because we wanted to um, encourage the schools to be very open, and so we assured their anonymity, and so we didn't collect descriptive information on their schools so they didn't name their school or the part of the state they were responding from so it's hard to judge in that sense yeah well i still think it's well worth knowing what some of their concerns were so uh, let's first of all talk about the schools that are participating what are what are the reasons they give for participating in the program yeah, so overwhelmingly they said that they're trying to serve more disadvantaged students and that they're trying to achieve greater racial and socioeconomic integration in their schools. 
Well, uh, uh, how about here's here's the question I have: Do they do they need the money? I'm always suspicious of all people, <laughs> <laughs> and that people do things in order to in order to uh, in order to uh, meet their budget. So, did you get any hint that that might be the case? Well, this is self-reported, so nobody, nobody indicated that that was their motivation. I would say that the program is so young, too, that there's no case in which there's a school like you would have in a city like Milwaukee where the enrollment is 90% voucher students or even higher. These schools were accepting three or four, really just a handful of voucher students and testing the waters for now. So it's something that will be interesting to watch over time to see how, how large of a proportion of their population they will allow to become voucher funded. They were very cautious in the focus groups. They did not feel comfortable that this funding was going to be sticking around from year to year, so they didn't want to expose themselves by accepting more students than they could continue to support through other means if the program itself goes away. Well, one thing is school... interesting concern, though, because the program has gone through the court system in North Carolina, and the state Supreme Court said it's not going anywhere. It is constitutional. Well, that's very interesting, although legislatures can change their mind easily enough when there's a partisan change in their composition. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, it does sound like they probably were taking a few students in order to diversify their their student body. Probably those responses were uh, frank Mm -hmm. ones. Yeah. Um, So so did they uh, uh, voice concerns other than that the program might be eliminated? What were some of the other concerns they had about uh, participating in the program? So both groups, the participants and the non-participants, we asked them about um, future regulations, if that's a concern for them, because that's something that has come up in the other states where these surveys have been conducted, so Indiana, Florida, and Louisiana. Similar surveys of school leaders have been done, and that came out for a theme for us as well. which is also, I think, interesting in this context because the program could be fairly described as lightly regulated relative to other similar programs in other states. Um, but they they were focused on future regulations that could come with, with participating in the program. And again, maybe that's something they're looking ahead to a changing political climate if the legislature were to change um, and that the, the testing requirements in particular might change. Well, how does North Carolina compare to other states in private school participation? Is this 44% uh, particularly low, or is it about what you get in other states? Well, in Louisiana, about a third of the private schools participate in their voucher program, so this is higher. Um, that's their, their means-tested program, which is the most similar to this one. Um, in Florida, it's a higher percent. I don't recall the exact percent off the top of my head, but the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program is the largest in the country that supports private school choice, and so they have a large number of private schools that do participate. Well, the nice thing about the tax credit program is that it's they're, they're taking the money from private foundations, not directly yeah. from the government, and so they may feel more comfortable with that. That's right. There, there, there are people with very strong opinions on how the North Carolina program is set up, and people that, that support it and opponent and oppose it, and feel very strongly about the, that that money is coming from from the state budget. Well, do, are there some private schools? Do you have? Did you talk to some private school leaders who did not participate, and did they give a reason for why they weren't participating? Yeah. So one one thing that came up during those conversations was the value of the scholarship. So, like I said, it's worth forty two hundred dollars right now. Um, about eighty percent of families said that wasn't enough to cover all their expenses. 
and so families are making up the difference and school leaders are looking at that and so they cited as a concern that they were worried the value of the scholarship won't increase as the cost to educate increases over time yeah yeah so like the program has been around since the 2014 that fall semester and it hasn't that value of the voucher hasn't increased and there's been no conversation about even potentially increasing it and so i think schools are looking at that and saying well 10 years from now will it still be 4200 dollars and so weighing that right in their decisions right so so uh i've been asking you questions about school leaders school officials but how about the parents? You you said you talked to a number of parents, but uh, how many did you actually talk to? So for the focus groups, we spoke in depth with 13 parents. And then for the survey, we surveyed 2,400 parents. And these were applicants. Everybody who we talked with was an applicant to the program and then either declined or were ineligible or accepted the voucher. Um, so we wanted to get a little mixture of those groups. Oh, very good. So where what's the difference in uh, the ones who accepted and the ones who didn't accept? Did you, did you yeah. identify anything? Yeah. So all the new yeah. applicants, about a third accepted only about 6% declined, a quarter were ineligible, and then there is another chunk of parents who were just unresponsive, that's 27%, and they either, you know, they, they, were, they were deemed to be eligible and they were awarded a voucher, but when the state tried to reach out to them to make arrangements to let them know that they could go ahead and enroll in a private school, they just couldn't get through to these families. Um, you know, the state collects their email address and their phone number at the time of application and other information. But this is a mobile population a, a lot of times, and the cell phones, you know, they change numbers or um, email addresses become inactive and they just couldn't be tracked down. It's also possible some of these moved out of state or they were indirectly declining, you know, deciding, like, weighing, weighing whether or not they really wanted to use this and, and deciding not to and just not responding to the state. Well, that is very familiar because uh, in other voucher programs, you know, a third or more uh, do not, in, in fact, enroll even after they've expressed an interest. Uh, you know, things happen to people in their lives. Uh, like right. you say, they, they move or there's a, a family crisis, and this happens to low-income families particularly. So That's right. it's, uh, yeah, you, just because somebody says they're coming maybe uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. So uh, do you have any recommendations? Now, there are some implied in what you've said here, but do you have any recommendations for what North Carolina might do as they, as they try to enhance the program? Well, I think one thing to consider is that they currently offer a full voucher and a partial voucher, and that's depending on your income eligibility. So if your family qualifies for the free and reduced lunch program, you, you are technically eligible, and you're coming from a public school, you're eligible for the full voucher. And if you um, are at 133% of that income line, so you're a little bit above that cutoff, you can still qualify for a voucher, but it's a smaller voucher, 90%. I think that there is room to even further differentiate that, particularly if there are conversations about increasing the value of the voucher. Maybe those increases shouldn't be across the board, but they should be targeted so that the lowest income families have the most to gain from the program. When we did look at the median household income, it was about $16,000, and that's you know, quite low. And so this, this is a needy population that um, finds it difficult to make up the difference because of this co-payment requirement. Um, families talked about how they make up the difference. A lot of them are relying on other family members. You know, my brother helped us out when parents said, um, or they're applying to the private schools for financial aid to make up the difference. But the private schools talked about how, um, you know,
you know, they're, they're helping the families perhaps with the tuition and fees. And then some of, one of the private schools talked about how they established a lunch fund, at least for the first semester, to ease that transition for families. So there's lots of financial considerations that come in play that I think families will struggle to, to meet, even though they, they might not have seen that before so, applying. So how much does North Carolina spend per pupil on uh, public school students? So I don't know the exact figure off the top of my head, but I looked it up at one point, and I do recall it's below the national average. So if we think that on average per pupil expenditures are about $12,000 per year, my best estimate for North Carolina without knowing the exact statistic is about $8,000. Yeah, at least. I bet you it's higher than that. And so this is really about half. And so there's a lot of room there for the state to uh, increase the voucher without it uh, having an impact on their overall education budget. Right. And these are questions for policymakers to weigh. You know, do they want to serve more students with a smaller voucher or fully fund a smaller number of students with a greater voucher? Well, Anna, this is so interesting. Thank you very much for joining me today. This is Anna Igalate. She is a professor at North Carolina State University uh, in the College of Education. She has uh, done a fantastic job of uh, finding out exactly what's happening uh, at the school level and the parent level in the state of North Carolina. So why not as many students participated in the voucher program as might have been expected and why not as many schools participated? So thank you, Anna, for joining me on the Education Exchange. This is Paul Peterson. Please join me next week on the Education Exchange. We uh, are uh, alive with a new podcast uh, every Monday morning at 12 noon.